here at Weekly Corner Spady is Kieran, and I am joined by Rob. Hello. And we are also joined by uh, Madeline Nikolova uh, to talk to us about Bulgaria, which we get obsessed with occasionally, but we need to stop talking out of our ass about Bulgaria. <laughs> and, uh, uh, start talking informed, smart stuff. Um, so, hey, Madeline, how you doing? Good, good. Thanks for having me. No problem. You've been doing a great job talking out of your ass about Bulgaria so far. Yay! Uh, I'm very happy to have you on because uh, previous episodes on discussing Bulgaria have largely been based on your article in New Left Review. Uh, um, So, yeah, very happy to have you on. Yeah, Uh, and like many of our obsessions, it started with the skull. A fascinating character by the name of the sc- nickname the skull, uh, Vaso Bosco. <laughs> yes. Which, but then I, I mean, we've 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 returned to him a few times in his now exile. Yeah. But I think the reason that we've kept talking about Bulgaria is because um, since the protests against uh, the the longtime prime minister in 2020 kicked off, there were three elections last year, and the government that's taken form after the final elections in November is very interesting. Uh, it's a coalition of four parties that all seem to, I don't know, represent new, strange uh, versions of whatever this political moment uh, we're seeing in Europe. Um, so it's, we're happy to have you on, Maggie, to, to break it down for us. Thank you. Um, I guess we should start with the biggest party in the coalition, which is also the newest which is called We Continue to Change. Um, so after the April 2021 elections failed to produce a governing majority, a caretaker government was in, was appointed. Um, now that Borisov is out. And as the deadlock continued um, in April and I think July was the next set of elections, I got the impression that the caretaker government was kind of rising in popularity. And there were even some calls to make it permanent. And after the second elections failed to produce a government, um, so two ministers in particular stepped down and ran as permanent ministers. And this party, we continue the change, uh, ended up being the largest party and has now successfully formed a government and is the largest party in the governing coalition. So before talking about the party itself, the, what I want to un, like unravel is why the caretaker government was so popular. Like, what did people think about it? And what does that reveal about Bulgarian politics today? Well, I guess to explain why the caretaker government was so popular is to talk a little bit about what we had as a government for the past almost 11 years. Uh, just before that, and it was the rule of uh, the center-right GERB, um, a party whose leader, Boyko Borisov, was prime minister for most of that time. Um, and uh, the rule of GERB was mostly famous for its corruption scandals, like some authoritarian um, trends in it, like uh, persecuting its uh, less political, but more so uh, business rivals. So rivals of people close to GERB, but also of GERB themselves. Um, And like uh, increasing inequality, mostly right-wing, reforms um, and shady deals. So that's what the government has been known for. But it, like the discontent with this 
party and its rule became ever so um, bigger because uh, in 2020 there had been a number of um, very um, weird scandals, for example, concerning um, photos that leaked of Boyko Borisov in his bedroom in his uh, prime minister's residence in a bed, half naked, and next to him a nightstand full of gold bars, a gun, and a huge piles of cash. Yes. Uh, <laughs> podcast fodder, some of us. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was... I don't understand. And then, That's love. <laughs> it was impressive. And there would be speculations, I guess, that this... Um, businessman, the skull, leaked these photos uh, and Boyko Borisov himself kind of admitted that the photos are real but that someone had planted the cash, gun and gold bars. Uh, and even that there was this back and forth with the president, he was accusing the president that with some drone that he was flying from his president's residence nearby in these pictures. Anyway, they were bigger issues. Um, there's a yes, as I mentioned, increasing inequality, but also um, a lot of um, um, discontent over how the prosecutor general, the attorney general, was doing their job. Um, his name is Ivan Geshev. Like the the work of the prosecution under him was too politicized. It was serving Gerb's interests. It was prejudicial. It released proofs uh, in the media. Uh, disregarding the secrecies uh, of pre-trial investigation, um, didn't like do any work on signals related to GERB dealings. So these anti-corruption uh, protests against GERB um, started in July 2020, and they were fueled in part by the raiding of the President Radev's office by the prosecution on charges against one of his advisors. And um, um, these charges were related to one of um, Gerb's business rivals, rivals who was prosecuted in the anti-corruption specialized court, which was like a big, um, a big deal for Gerb to found it in the early 2010s. So, uh, moreover, um, uh, just a day before that raid, a day or two. Um, was the storming of the honorary leader of the Movement for Rights and Liberty, supposedly representing Bulgarian Muslims. Um, uh, the, the home of that leader was raided by this liberal right party. Uh, they went to inspect whether that vacation home at the seaside um, was uh, had actually privatized part of the coast, which is like national property. And it turned out that the National Protection Service, a government ser governmental service, was protecting his property for some weird reason. And the president like reacted against that. And as a retaliation, the prosecutor general raided the president's office. So uh, the protest started. They started calling for the resignation of both the government and the attorney general. Others started calling for online voting as more people joined. Uh, some called for illustration, like getting rid of the communists in government and political parties and life. Um, started calling for constitutional reforms for all kinds of stuff. Um, and uh, 
Radev was like a big part of these protests. He supported them a couple of times. He actually um, uh, joined the protests, uh, lifted up his fist and um, called for larger opposition rallies against um, the government. So Radev was extremely popular at the time and his popularity um and the pro- the support for these large protests, which lasted m- months on end, um, is what uh, secured the popularity of the caretaker government. And then the caretaker government itself revealed a bunch of corruption deals and siphoning off of government and new funds through like highway construction projects and then some development like clones given only to a couple of large companies, even though they were meant for small and medium enterprises. Um, but the trials for all these deals are still ongoing and I know if anything is going to um, come out of this. Um, so yeah, that's where the legitimacy of the caretaker government came from. And um, many of the people were um, in the government uh, were not um, involved in, with any other parties before that, which is always great in Bulgaria, but it's harder to find people who haven't been active in any party now. So, and it's a risky move as well, I'm sure, because you're putting your faith into a bunch of people who have kind of just shown up. So, anyway. yeah, there's a few names you mentioned there I want to come back to, but maybe it makes sense to mm-hmm. uh, stay with Borisov for a minute because he was arrested recently. Right. What can you explain what happened? Because as I understand it, the main I don't know what to call it, the main complaint against him is coming from Vasil Boskov, the skull. Well we yeah, the so, Yeah, it's a, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you can trust any of these people, but um <laughs> the deal with Boskov is that basically he complained that he was being um there was an extortion that, like, if he would pay bribes to Boyko Borisov, his finance minister, through the mediation of Boyko Borisov's PR, like some long story, then he wouldn't have to pay taxes on his businesses. He would mostly doing gambling and casinos and that kind of stuff. And, uh, um, yeah, he, two weeks ago, I think now, Boyk um, Borisov was arrested on the day that um, European prosecutor Laura Kiovashi uh, visited Bulgaria and discussed with the prime minister like um, um, crimes related to fraud um, involving EU funds, EU development funds. Um, so the EU prosecution, you supposedly has to deal with uh, crimes related to EU funds. So it was not really clear if part of his job is to deal with crimes related to tax collection, which is the case with Boshkov's allegations against Borisov. And it's still not entirely clear what crimes um, Borisov was arrested for that evening. It was very confusing. People celebrated all over Bulgaria, even in Borisov's own neighborhood. There were fireworks, crackers, um, but it didn't amount to much, but it introduced like a lot more drama these days um, in Bulgarian political life. 
Um, the next place I want to ask about is Radev, because part of what was um, confusing is that he was, I, like when you when you look him up online, they has has the BSP, the Bulgarian Socialist Party, next to his name, which is one of the establishment parties, um, although not um, Borisov's party. But he's is he, as I understand, is somewhat independent of that party. Is he seen more favorably than that party? And how, where does he, just talk a little bit more about him and how he plays a role in all of this. Uh, so, Radev was uh, part of the military before, um, that's how the story goes, the official story goes. Uh, Ninova, the leader of the Bulgarian Socialist Party, uh, asked him to be the BSP candidate for president uh, when he won his first term, I believe, 2016. Um and uh, he was not a member of the BSP before that. And uh, Ninova had recently become leader of the BSP. And that was like a big win for her that she picked someone who uh, became so popular so quickly, even though he was not exactly a well-known figure before that. Um, and um, uh, he... Um, Came more and more independent of Ninova uh, as time went on. And uh, Ninova thought she would be able to control him afterwards, after the election, but there had been like more and more conflicts brewing uh, between the BSP itself and Radev. And Radev has become much more popular in the part than the party itself, seen as more principled. Um, also, part of it. Uh, part of that owes to the fact that um, he's not actually in the executive power and his power is kind of limited. So he can't be asked for much, but he can be blamed for much either. So um, um, he kind of deepened the conflict between him and Ninova as she made more and more enemies within her own party and he started uh, appointing as uh, speakers, ministers, uh, some of uh, in the caretaker government, some of her rivals from the BSP that she tried to expel from the leadership structures. Um, so, yeah, um, the people he was close with in the BSP were often from the so-called left wing of the party. It's interesting because, like, this is uh, for our American listeners is something that happens actually relatively commonly in Europe, especially Europe that has ceremonial presidents, like figurehead presidents, is they can be actually completely uh, untied from the party they supposedly come from. Because this whole story reminds me of the president of Ireland, who is from uh, the Labour Party, who has like basically completely collapsed. But like the the scandals of that party seem to not affect him at all. He's like incredibly popular within within Ireland. Michael D Higgins. Um, so yeah, that's like I think that's weirdly common. There's something about the presidency. Um, you could say the same for also like Italian, like Italy's presidency as well has also been like um, kind of just like separated from the parties that they're from or put them there. It's a very strange phenomenon. Yeah, and it's I. I, I think I'm interested in him because it's kind of unclear what his, I mean, it seems like he's leading some kind of anti-corruption politics. Is that because he sees there's a lot of power in a new potential anti-corruption movement? 
Um, does he not see a contradiction being from the BSP and trying to fight corruption is what it's, I I find it interesting. Like, like to what, what, where he's coming from with, with all of this. Well, as most politicians, I don't think they think much about their own politics and ideologies. Uh, They're like the way politicians in Bulgaria think about politics is very practical in a sense. Um, the BSP itself is not a, a anti-capitalist party. Uh, it increasingly identifies uh, more and more as um, a conservative socialist, as uh, its leader uh, um, framed it. Um, and anti-corruption is just like a safe bet in Bulgaria. Uh, and you can it it can be easily used against uh, your political and business rivals, and it can change direction all the time. It's universal in that sense. He's uh, the Arab himself has not been very vocal on social issues, but that's really also because of how constrained his role is. Even though he's been pretty active as a president, because there there's been president, for example, the Gary president wasn't very vocal on any issues during his uh, single term. Um, but Aralev, for example, has supported some um, environmental causes, vetoing clause that would um, um, set back environmental movements, but um, not, not much beyond that. And he has been perceived as a very much pro-Russian, um, but that's also very not not clear in a sense, but he did claim recently that Premier is Russian. He recognizes it as Russian, um, but he has been trained as part of the army in, in NATO structures, traveled sure. for all kinds of trainings in the U.S. It's not so clear cut. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Um Correct me if I'm wrong, though. I just I want to talk about the anti-corruption stuff as well. Is one thing I've seen in, uh, namely in like Russia more than Bulgaria when they talk about like anti-corruption, is that it's also very usefully useful politically because um, it's almost kind of vague. It's kind of like when someone when the when the electorate when people hear anti-corruption, I think the hope is that will just be whatever you don't like or whatever you think is unfair about bureaucracy, local government, national government. It seems very conveniently amorphous as a political tool. Yeah, Yeah. and I guess part of the appeal is that you don't have to question, like, catalyst relations, really. You can all blame it on some Balkan specificity or Oriental specificity or uh, Bulgarian, specifically Bulgarian trade. Um, but that discourse, I believe, has transformed over the past 30 years because part of the anti-corruption um, discourse was inherited from socialism in a way when there uh, was a lot of critique of uh, the privileges of the of the communist elite, right? So a lot of um, that corruption discourse in the 90s was also targeting these elites and see, and was informed by some kind of sentiment that 
had equality as its first goal, right? It it was seen as if every kind of quick enrichment um, is a product of corruption rather than of some market legitimate market relations in a way. But uh, the discourse hasn't transformed a lot, especially since the late 90s has become, and corruption has started to be seen as a legacy itself uh, of socialism and as a, like a cultural trade in a sense. I mean, that, I feel like that's a, a, a very common story with um, quote unquote Eastern Europe. It's always like, the reason Eastern Europe is the way it is today is because of communism and not, and but like the nineties, the early two thousands, that's just like nothing happened. Uh, that that <laughs> didn't impact anything. Um, yeah. Like when people talk about like why Hungary has Victor Orban or something, it's always like, it's because of communism, not because of anything that happens in the 30 years since that ended. Yeah, there is an assumption that there can be some just and fair primitive accumulation where everyone would get a little bit of the prosperity, but it hasn't worked that way anywhere, I guess. <laughs> well, while we're talking about anti-corruption politics, whatever form that may take, um, we should talk about the, the party. We continue the change because it seems to be the latest and greatest... I have version. I have one very short and simple question about we continue to change. Go for it. In Bulgarian, is that name easier to say? <laughs> <laughs> because it seems very long in English. Or anagram, or it's PP, right? Or I mean, whatever it is. In... PP. Oh. Um, but yeah, people usually say the uh, which yeah, I guess it's not that. It doesn't roll out that easily in Bulgarian either. Yeah, anyway, a message, I guess they're they're but trying to communicate. It's robust. <laughs> it sounds like they're doing a lot. If it's yeah, yeah, yeah. they didn't have much time, so give them. <laughs> That's <laughs> true. Yeah, this is the problem of new political parties. You don't have a lot of time to workshop the name. That's the only problem. <laughs> um, well, we can talk about the name. Uh, I'd also want to ask about the the new prime minister Kirill Petkov. Um, he was the minister of the economy. I think under the the caretaker government and stepped down and now he's you know he's the prime minister. Um we talked about him because of his quite egregious statement about the the um refugees coming from Ukraine um comparing them to other refugees. Um interesting but, uh, in Bulgaria that statement was understood as like very generous and like welcoming of refugees. <laughs> It is, yeah, it, it is kind of like it's one of those things. But a lot of people have pointed out that like uh, Western European countries are treating Ukrainian refugees a lot better than they treated the Syrian refugees. Uh, uh, but then you kind of look at like say the UK, which has done a um, a blanket response of actually no, all refugees are terrible. Ukrainian or Syrian is like maybe that's not any better. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I understand. No, but. It's interesting because I remember 2013 with the wave of Syrian refugees. Um, like some people were even saying, I hate these people being in my town and breathing my air. So like they felt that something big is taken away from them. And these days, Petkov, the prime minister, was actually trying to um, convince people that these refugees may breathe their air, but it's okay because they're really like, welcome and they're the victim of this terrible regime and we should like welcome them. Um, that was the idea behind his statement, but um, 
Yeah, I'm not going to try and justify that. It was awful. <laughs> There's enough air to go around. Yes. They're the victims of this terrible regime, unlike Assad, who I like. <laughs> I was like, wait, yeah. what? That would be an interesting direction to that take. That would it. be. <laughs> um, he did yeah. not say that. Anything else about Petkov or the party itself? Like, what... what it's it's a little unclear what its future prospects are. Is it because because it came as this protest party? What form? I mean, it's been already a couple months. Do can you do you have any idea of where it might be going or how they might? They're described, for example, as pro Western all the time in the in just news reports. Anything about the party? Well, who is it? <laughs> yeah, Bulgaria is in NATO. There's no. Apparently, out. Stefan Yanev is not, but we'll get to him. <laughs> like, no, this, this is the thing of just like I understand uh, pro-Western, pro-Russian debates in like Ukraine, Moldova, but once you're in NATO, you're not getting out. <laughs> There's no leaving NATO. They're in it, baby. You can you can elect the like I'm I'm Johnny pro-Russia doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you're in NATO. No leaving. Yeah. Yeah, basically it's a performance if you do that here. Um, well, it's a very strange party. It's not even a party. It doesn't have that many members. It doesn't have any local structures anywhere around the country. Uh, half of the MPs, I think, are former students of Vasilev and his uh, partner, also a minister in the caretaker government, Asim Vasilev. Um, they were their students at Sofia University where they were doing these like Harvard-like courses in economy, in economics. Um, uh, they're pro-EU, pro, pretty much new liberal, but not as extreme as other parties. How they differ, I believe, from other liberal, new liberal right parties is that they're uh, first much more charismatic in a sense. They don't have this elit elitist um, uh, statements as the other party. They're not um, they're not uh, talking against regular people all the time. Their messaging is not so elitist. They're not, they basically gave up on anti-communism, which is very central to the other right-wing parties. Mm. And I think that's what appealed to many people who may not want socialism to be back, but are still a bit nostalgic of the social security that sure. they saw it promise. Yeah, that, that is interesting that, um, again, it is possibly a message worth getting out to the wider world that not everyone from a former Eastern Bloc country actually hates that they're from like they hate the past kind of thing which is uh, i think uh, uh, the narrative of all these countries that is commonly portrayed especially in like english-speaking countries uh, um particular well also i guess the kind of eastern europeans you hear speaking in western europe is the kind who are not <laughs> who don't mean socialism yet. um who who's the there's an American who like became an expert in Eastern Europe recently because her her husband is a Polish guy who's in like the PIS. I've forgotten. Oh, okay, that's, that's another topic. Me. That's me. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about Volt? Do you have any Volt questions? I mean, the, I feel like the fans will be upset if I don't mention Volt at least once. Uh, I'll reiterate a point that I think I've said in the bonus. Um, 
Wait, wait, I should clarify that yeah. Volt, so we continued the change because it was just a couple months before the election. They're, they couldn't register as a party, and so Volt Bulgaria was one of two parties that was formally, they surrender the party list or however the formalities work. Okay. So in a way, Volt is winning big in Bulgaria in some, <laughs> in some sense. In a very abstract <laughs> kind of way, yeah, sure. Um, the the two things that I, I, I will say that I've from previous Volt episodes that may be like paywalled or something is that uh, no Volt party has succeeded without huge donations. Basically all the, all the uh, uh, successful quote unquote uh, uh, Volt parties come with a lot of money behind them. Um, So, and couple that piece of information with the Bulgarian Volt party is um disregarding the uh, eu volt rules of showing your donations I, I i spent a lot of time on their website with google translate i couldn't find their listed like donors anywhere which you can find on the the dutch and the german uh, uh, um, volt websites um but i think i think the only thing i'm going to say is uh, um, what we talked about uh, um in a in a private dm which was that you forgot that they were in government or that they were in parliament, <laughs> which I think says a lot. Owned. <laughs> well, yeah, they they were, yes, used as an empty vessel to carry. We continue to change. And the other party's name is, interesting, is interestingly um, European middle class. Um, but now it would be interesting <laughs> who... <laughs> Volts are just like kicking themselves that they didn't take that one. <laughs> it's so obvious. We could have just called ourselves European middle class. God damn it. Um, it does yeah. what it says on but, the team. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting now who the party subsidy goes to. Does it go to mostly we continue to change or do they split it with vote? So that would solve some of their financial woes which I imagine they did have. Maybe that's why they didn't report their donations because they didn't have any. They were embarrassed. I don't know. Well, yeah, that, that's how the other parties operate, like like uh, Austrian Volt that doesn't even have a website that has like a Facebook page, and you're like, hmm. I think it, I think it's fitting in Volt's image to like sacrifice themselves to create the European movement. They're like Batman, you know. It's yeah, like, yeah. we're not we're not there. Like, you can hate us; they can take all the credit, but we're creating the we're EU. <laughs> we're strengthening the yeah, EU. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's all. I think we, we don't need to say anything else about Volt Bulgaria. Other than I'm coming for you. We will get sidetracked. <laughs> uh, okay, I, but we're not leaving the topic because I want to bring in this other character, this Stefan Yanev. Stefan's his name, right? Um, he was yeah. the the caretaker prime minister, and then was ministry minister of the of defense or military or something. Yeah. And he was dismissed a month ago. Uh, Shortly after the war broke out, because I don't remember all of his statements, but he w- he would refer to it as an operation, for example. So using the the, the, the Russian state uh, language about the invasion of Ukraine, maybe something else. And there's a general, I don't know, Russia, West, culture war, struggle. Um, I, wh- why I'm interested or what I found interesting was if... If um, Petkov and the party's legitimacy comes from being part of the caretaker government, then 
they're no, they don't have any more legitimacy per se than Yanev, who was also part of the caretaker government. So how does that tension work itself out when they both can claim this legitimacy? Well, I think, um, so when the war broke out, was it a first day, I think? Yes, Yanev uh, this described it as a, a special operation and he for three or four days he refused to call it a war and apparently the prime minister Petkov had a talk with him a couple of times but um, Yanif wouldn't call it a war and then on a Sunday before he was asked for his resignation um, he uh, put out some kind of rumor that he's actually being sacked because there's increasing pressure on Bulgaria to provide weapons to Ukraine coming from the West, right? Um, and the government is going to succumb to these demands. But that hasn't happened yet. And actually, the prime minister has been reluctant to agree to that and has instead called on parliament to decide whether Bulgaria supports Ukraine with weapons. Uh, so that's the first thing that kind of um, w disturbed Yanev's legitim legitimacy. He's like um, claims that didn't really come true. Um, and also the other thing is that in Bulgaria right now there is overwhelming support for Ukraine, even though Bulgarians do not want to, like according to recent polls, Bulgarians do not want to send weapons there, but are happy to take in refugees mm. and support Ukraine financially and refugees financially as well. Um, so there are overwhelming um, attitudes in support of Ukraine. And if Yanev tries to tap in on the pro-Russian sentiments, into those, um, then he would receive a bit less support and he wouldn't be able to uh, get to the perfect center that would get you the most votes in Bulgaria. Uh, he might um, steal some votes that uh, have gone to the BSP so far because of its pro-Russian allegiances, symbolic. Um, but his party, if he actually founds one, which he's claimed he's going to do, will be much more nationalist. And he might see also votes from like lamer far-right parties, like the um, one represented in parliament called Revival uh, or Vazrazane, and maybe taming some of the, um, their voters. So that would be interesting, but I don't know who he's going to found that party with, um, what's, where is it going to stand on social issues, and how sustainable it is. But I don't think it will steal many votes from, uh, we continue to change, necessarily. Fair. Um, I want to ask you about another party in the coalition, because I have trouble distinguishing them from we continue to change just in terms of ideology and, and where they stand, which is democratic Bulgaria. Um, they've been around. They're the smallest party in the co in the coalition, which is 16 seats, but they were around since the first election in, in, in 2021. And um, the, the event you were alluding to with this dramatic, um, quite the spectacle, you know, I was impressed with the, with the boat, uh, <laughs> like 
running up on this land that should be public but is uh, controlled by this uh, oligarch. Uh, he's that uh, Christo Ivanov, I think is his name, is a member of, of this party. Where where do they stand ideologically? How are they different from We Continue the Change? If all? They're all about beaches. Beaches oh. should be public. <laughs> it's the main issue. Not a bad issue. No, it's a, it's a great issue. <laughs> yeah, I think part of... So, first of all, that's not a party. Democratic Bulgaria is a coalition of three parties itself. So, basically, in government right now, there's at least seven parties. Or maybe more since we continue to change his two other parties. It's very confusing. Anyway. So Democratic Bulgaria are a coalition of three other parties. One is uh, called a Green Movement, formerly the Greens, uh, which is a party that was founded in 2008 um, to... Uh, collect the votes of a pretty big environmentalist movement since the end of the 80s in Bulgaria, very strong movement. Um, the other party is called um, Democrats for Stronger Bulgaria, which is a split from the big anti-communist party in the 90s, Union of Democratic Forces, and it was founded in 2004. And the third party, whose leader is Hriso Ivanov, is also, in a sense, a splinter of the big anti-communist party, like a couple of levels detached, maybe. Um, the party is called Yes Bulgaria, Da Bulgaria. Um, well, as I said, what distinguishes we continue to change from these three parties, maybe a little less valid for the Green Movement, is that uh, we continue to change are much more uh, uh, much less elitist. Um, they would like to appeal to wider audiences. Um, that they can just run onto the beach. <laughs> <laughs> they want to talk to. It was a kind of label. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but yeah, they're very anti-communist. They're obsessed with illustration and um, communist secret service agents. Uh, and we continue to change are just m- much more charismatic. They're also new. They've not been in government, uh, whereas members of these three parties have actually been in government with GERB themselves, even though some of them quit over disillusionment with um, rule of law reforms and so on. Uh, but yeah, they they try to appeal, and they in fact end up appealing mostly to um, middle class people in bigger cities. Fair enough. Is there any like appreciable any other appreciable way that we continue the change like reaches I don't know normal uh, or like the mass massive Bulgarian voters? It's just like it's something people might say they want to do, but I mean we continue the change is the biggest party, so. I guess they're succeeding somehow. Is it just the, the the name recognition, the charisma? Is there anything else? I think just the issues they touch upon, they do pay um, some kind of attention to social woes, and they would speak of inequality, and they would I wouldn't say they're as extremely obsessed with digitalization of the administrative services and stuff. Uh, and they would acknowledge that there's rampant inequalities, that wages are too low and pensions are too low. It, it's it's early to tell whether that would translate into some kind of concrete policies, but they do at least 
uh, acknowledge that there's other kinds of issues other than rule of law reform or judicial reform that people care about. And the way they talk is just much more accessible. So everyone, all the parties we've talked about other than Borisov and Gerb have been the so-called protest parties. Um, but the, the third party in the coalition I want to talk about is the BSP, the Bulgarian Socialist Party. Mm. And as the, the, through the elections in 2021, the protest parties would rule out working with the establishment, which, as I understand, is Gerb, and BSP. BSP, and this, uh, the, the DPS, so this party that's allegedly for the rights of uh, Muslims and minorities in Bulgaria. Um, but eventually, here we are, and the BSP is a part of the governing coalition. So why was BSP better positioned than the other two parties? Are they seen as the least bad? Is it just because they weren't GERB? Is what, like, how, how did they end up here? Part of it is that um, they haven't ruled for a while. Um, another part of it is, like, simple algebra, like, what, what, how, how many MPs do we need to actually form a majority in parliament and pass uh, government initiatives in parliament, right? Uh, but the other thing is that BSP itself has been moving to the right and has fewer and fewer and more limited social policies uh, that uh, try to remedy inequalities and poverty. Um, whereas some of the other parties, even like the parties in democratic Bulgaria, have realize that they're not going to achieve more than 10%, even the three of them together, if they don't make some concessions in terms of like tax policies, for example, because in Bulgaria right now, there's a flat taxation rate. Um, and they were making promises that there will be at least a non-taxable minimum income. Um, so, uh, during the protests in 2020 and following these protests, the BSP itself tried to appeal to a more liberal-minded liberal people and talk about judicial reform and took up the cause of um, the struggle against the, the supposedly corrupt prosecutor general, right? So that's part of why the BSP wasn't also singled out as a, a party that they couldn't partner with at all. Also, the the other option, I guess, was uh, the far-right party, Revival, which is itself seen as a, even more of a Russian agent and paid by the Russians to advocate their interests in Bulgaria. Well, I guess the other option would just be just yet another election, but I guess there was that was unpalatable at a certain point, or what, what was uh, that? Well, yeah, well, the, some of the parties started losing votes, especially since the July votes, right? Like, is, there's only so many times where people would trust you to um, to get your thing together and, like, <laughs> actually form a government. Cause, and it actually costs a lot to organize elections. You, you mentioned the turnout in your New Left Review piece, and I, I looked it up, the numbers, just to have it here. Um, so based from 2017, there was a 52% turnout that went down to 49 in April, 40 in July and 38 in November. 30 fucking age. That's pretty bad. That's, <laughs> oh, oh God. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. I, 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 
I've seen okay, I've seen Slovakian elections with like eleven percent sure, but like that's meant to be an outlier. God damn it! What is what was the so you know we've been talking for forty minutes plus about Bulgarian politics, but with a turnout of thirty eight percent, like, can you give us any sense of what the people's mood is towards politics? Like, where are those people going? Like, people just stop voting do they not care who's in power anymore they think everyone's corrupt anyway yeah the 62 percent that didn't vote what are they what are they jeez that's a lot of people what are they thinking? <laughs> but i was thinking about today i don't know if you know this youtube channel it's called 1420 this russian guys who are in just doing random posts on the streets of moscow uh, asking people like, what is your dream job? But now with the start of the war, they start asking more and more politicized questions. It seems like hundred um, percent like Rob's favorite shit. <laughs> I think he's looking at right now. Go on. <laughs> it's pretty great. Like yeah. I've been watching it every day since the war started. But like they would ask so many people what their opinion of Putin is or of the war or the special operation, and they would say, I'm apolitical. Which I found so such a thing a strange thing to say because in Bulgaria you wouldn't that would mean that you've actually thought about it and that's your identity now. I'm apolitical. Whereas in Bulgaria, I think that many people are just like sick of it and don't really care and don't even bother to come up with this definition of their political or ethical stance in life, you know, they're not even apolitical. I think people are just sick of being disregarded and seeing a lot of the political elites enriching themselves and people driving extremely expensive cars in the streets of South and smaller towns. Um, But also just there's nothing to appeal to people in political debates around election time just because everyone's saying the same exact thing. Mm. Like, we'll fight corruption, we'll um, struggle to um, introduce more mechanisms to uh, to, uh, increase transparency in governance, Um, we'll help small and medium-sized businesses, and even the BSP um, is not saying like we'll introduce this like progressive taxation reform. They would say that, but then it turns out it's progressive only for heterosexual families with kids that they would get like some tax deductions. Um, and they would keep talking about support for small and medium-sized businesses. And so this concern for the welfare of families in the last years uh, transpired also in many parties. Uh, conservative takes on the so-called Istanbul Convention of Children. Um, that's part of the gender panic in most of Eastern Europe, I guess, and in Germany in some sense. Yeah, half the So, yeah. I, kind of. <laughs> I want to... Um... Ask a little bit about the history of the the BSP. I, I, I just oh, I, yeah, yeah, for clarification for people who don't know because I think it's worth saying the Istanbul Convention is about beating women like and being against that. So uh, um, when people have takes on it, it's a little it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, weird at least, deeply hateful, and, very disturbing. Yes, mm-hmm. at best, yeah. Uh, um, that that one. Uh, um, uh, 
in, in Irish media, a Bulgarian MEP kind of like made the rounds in the news cycle because he got into an argument with an Irish MEP. Um, I've forgotten his name, Dra- Draj Busky or something. I I genuinely forgotten his name. Um, he's been arrested for drink driving. He like thinks he doesn't think Macedonian people are real. Uh, uh, it's it's a whole collection of stuff, and yeah, he has he has hot spicy takes on the Istanbul Convention, um, which is I just par for the course for a politician like him, I guess. Well, he's not going to get elected again, so he's <laughs> that's that's a consolation. Good. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the history of the BSP because you know how did we get here? Um, you you write about it in your new left review piece. Uh, oh yeah. Anything? Okay. <laughs> no, I just, uh, well, I, I just want to quote you a bit because I think it's quite succinct. Um, where you say, the skyrocketing unemployment and poverty of the transition period caused the BSP to pitch left in the 1994 elections, promising to temper neoliberal reforms with social protections. Elected on this platform, the BSP tried to retain price controls and protect the welfare state while privatizing the financial sector and deregulating international trade. Yet this attempt at class compromise resulted in a severe banking and social crisis three years later. Popular discontent with hyperinflation brought down the government in 1997, and the anti-communist parties managed to win a stable majority for the first and only time, offering radical neoliberal reform and the privatization of virtually all industry. The lesson for the BSP leadership was simple, that its left flank must not be allowed to govern. Um, As you write, afterwards, just four years later, the literal former czar became prime minister so there's it's, there seems to be a little bit of a i don't know that that's an interesting period that 94 to 97 um uh government in bulgaria like how what was the bsp like then how did have they changed since then um i think that's useful yeah. context for where they're at today well um first of all maybe it's worth to say that the BSP is the heir to the Bulgarian Communist Party that ruled the country from 44 to 89, just in case someone's wondering. But um, Jean Vidanov, who was the leader of the party since 91, I think, uh, was quite young at the time, his late 30s. Um, he was on a quest to build some kind of what some of my friends call neoliberalism with a human face. Uh, to ease the transition into market economy. But um, his plan was basically, okay, I'll liberalize trade. He joined, the country joined NATO in 96. Uh, there was a liberalization of agricultural products, product, of produce. And um, at the same time, uh, Fidenov was introducing price controls for a large share of products sold in Bulgaria. Um, at the time, I think I saw a title these days, the Washington Post called Bulgaria Europe's worst run economy in 96. Uh, there was a very slow rate of privatization and restructuring of the economy compared to like countries like Czechia, Estonia, Lithuania. Um, the BSP was scared to rip the Band-Aid because of course, lots of people would lose their job. There was no line- there was no willingness to outline real procedures for privatization, and there were many uh, unregulated, to say the least, or outright criminal privatization deals. Um, the BSP wanted to do like some kind of mass privatization that would include workers and managers becoming owners of the plants and companies they're working for. 
And basically the idea was that the state would just simply die out by giving away its property as uh, privatization vouchers to workers. So like some form of radically democratic redistribution. And there was like this bottom-up um, trend for like and calls for privatization. Like there was a million companies founded in the first year of the transition. And bear in mind, Bulgaria was even then like a very small country, nine million people, and there was one million companies registered. And people started building their own garages in um, between the housing blocks and enclosing public space and sealing meadows to sell first crap from like some old plants. Um, so privatization in this sense was not just simply a state governed and uh, run project. And at the same time, there were these elites who were enriching themselves in this chaos. And there were these credit millionaires, bank issuing credits to friends or government friends. And uh, there was a huge scams actually uh, ran by people close to the prime minister, but without his direct involvement, like some some of these people set up banks, one agricultural banks basically convinced members of um, agricultural cooperatives to uh, give them their funds and they tell them, they promise that these money will be reinvested in cooperatives and they would serve as an insurance policy, will buy machinery, will lend you money once when you need fertilizers or grains or whatever. And they basically stole the money and moved to South Africa. Uh, currency reserves. <laughs> yeah. Great country. Currency Yeah. <laughs> they never came back, thankfully. <laughs> Uh, currency reserves were depleted. Uh, so Bulgaria was facing bankruptcy. It couldn't cover uh, debt payments. Um, and at the time, banks set up high interest rates to stabilize the currency, the left. But it only aided in state enterprises and able to make loan payments. There was like huge inflation, tripling prices of bread, electricity, um, the state was lending a bunch of money to state enterprises, uh, which, which were running at a loss. Um, and uh, there were bank runs. Uh, everyone was trying to convert the left into hard currencies. Um, and at the same time, Bulgaria was complying with embargoes on Yugoslavia and, and Iraq. And I think Iraq owed a bunch of de debt to Bulgaria at the time, but they couldn't make these payments. Um, and in 97, there was like real mass hunger, hyperinflation, poverty. Um, and the government uh, introduced import surcharges to and started closing state firms, but it and refineries, but it was a little too late uh, in a sense. And um, there was IMF pressure to start planning the restructuring and privatization of other bigger state-owned companies. So I guess one of the lessons that um, the left and like the whole, all, Bulgar all the Bulgarians learned at the time was that it's impossible to do price control and the price controls and liberalization at the time at the same time and you can't build socialism in one small country like Bulgaria, right? Uh, so there was huge disappointment with the how with the ineptitude of the left wing of the Socialist Party to even control 
sabotage within its ranks and like just the total chaos of the uh, this period. So there were like big protests that brought down the government in early um, 97. And uh, these protests, even back then, 96, 97, that was before the former Tsar formed or claimed that he would form a party to join, to join Bulgarian political life. Um, that people were calling for restoration of the monarchy and were hoping that the Tsar would come back to Bulgaria and rule the country and like hurry the privatization reforms. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad that didn't happen. <laughs> but uh sure, you can I you can believe all sorts, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well that's I mean, that's definitely useful context for what I wanted to ask about today, which is on the one hand, you have Ninova, um, the the current leader who's resigned twice but then been like called back or the resignation has been rejected. Um there's like what role does she play in the future of the Bulgarian Socialist Party? As I understand it, there is like a left wing uh, socialism for the 21st century group. I don't know if there are other like factions in the in the BSP worth mentioning, but what are its internal politics like? Well, some of the uh, left wing or at least critical people in the BSP were marginalized by her who are part of the leadership structures of the parties, and some founded this initiative within the party, Socialism for the 21st Century. They're kind of European social democracy against capitalism. They're a bit more culturally progressive than the BSP leadership. It's kind of a non-revolutionary, like, gradualist anti-capitalism. And it's a lot of some people who are active in the left wing in the 90s are part of this uh, fraction right now. Um, I don't know. They just published um, one of them just published some like programmatic texts on uh, the war and called for um, uh, a, a government uh, governing uh, according to the formula peace, democratization, socialization. They're pretty cool, but I don't know how much leverage they have within the party as they're marginalized both in the media and in the structures of the party. So I don't know how many people they can reach nationally either. This might be a hard question, but is like a a left-wing entryism of the BSP possible? Maybe like, is that even on, I mean, we've talked about so many different parties today. Is the BSP like the quote unquote left option? Is what, what do you think? Well, there's some um, more radical left wing groups that are not political parties that themselves, which I think would try and pursue such a strategy. I'm, I'm not sure I believe in it, especially after the experience of the labor and treason strategy and just. Like witnessing the hold that some careerists have on the central governing structures of such big old parties, um, I'm not such an optimist on what can be achieved within the BSP. Fair. I'll be interested to see what happens, but yeah. Um, the one last bit of context I wanted to give, just because I wasn't positive, I under the, the translation was correct, but Ninova, according to this uh, this 
uh, post I was reading on Barricada that Ninova's two uh, negotiation points for joining the coalition were veto North Macedonian EU membership and gender ideology, which seem like, I mean, as your two like red lines, it just seems like uh, interesting priorities. Well, um, <laughs> these were both very popular causes in Bulgaria, unfortunately, and even for even if people don't really care about Northern Macedonia's uh, not entering the EU, people there's a widespread belief that this is not really a real nation and it doesn't really have its own language. And this would be um, believed by people like from liberal middle class people to working class people to like political elites uh, across the political spectrum. So on the one hand, I believe that Ninova thought, oh, it's such a popular cause. I might be like, it's the biggest defender of that cause and like the most radical defender. That's kind of like but, a culture war kind of issue of just like, this is something I can get people to support me. Uh, yeah, me. but it doesn't seem like she's learning because if you're just doing what everyone else is doing, then you're sharing the same voters, right? So it's, it's the vote... Yeah, yeah, you have nothing to offer. Um, so it was kind of sad because it doesn't seem like the BSP itself is learning from its like worst results ever at the last elections because now they're in government, so it's fine even if we only did like 12% or, or 10%. Um, it got us into the governing coalition. Uh, but uh, now another party in the governing coalition is pushing to obstruct the even the start of the negotiations for EU membership of North Macedonia. That party is the um, party of um, Slavik Trifonov, the TV show host. It's called um, There Is Such People. What a transition. Yeah. That's just about what I was going to ask about. That's the next line of the topic. Let's talk about yeah. We've talked about Trifonov before. I, I, yeah, I mean, again, when we're talking about podcast fodder for people in Berlin, the <laughs> the talk show host is the head of the band who has these, like, I, I'm not even sure how, like, as I understand, like, kind of, like, romantic, nostalgic songs and, like, rocks and, like, kind of these epic rock ballads and stuff. Um, also very versatile musically. A lot of uh, in, in the mashup. There's also well, first we're gonna do the. Do you have a favorite We're gonna do the Anthony Fantano <laughs> review before we get into his politics. It cuts a little close to home. <laughs> let's let's stick to the politics. Um, Maggie, you like you you have a few comparisons in your piece uh, to the Five Star Movement, which seems very fitting. Um, also to Zelensky, which was interesting because. I mean, everyone now knows who everyone he is. knows who he is now. <laughs> um, the five star movement you describe uh, pretty well. I think most of our listeners know the the dynamics of that party. What I'm interested in is what is different about the the Bulgarian version of this kind of like techno populist parties. Is there anything? Is it some kind of nationalism like you're referring to? Um, you also mentioned in your piece that they they do very well in the um, diasporic vote. What 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 can there is such a people add to our understanding of techno populism? 
Um, well, maybe it's interesting to just connect the rise of Slavi Trifonovas just as a public figure, um, the leader of the party, who was a TV show host for, I guess, around 30 years. I don't know if he's still active. He has his own media channel, which I'm not subscribed, like TV channel, which I'm not subscribed to, so I, I don't know what's going on. But like um, we talked about the 96-97 crisis in Bulgaria, and there were these big uh, movements in the, in 96, and Slavi Trifonov and his TV show at the time were very, um, and the people involved in the TV show were very active in the protests, and just in 96, they released this album called The Outcasts, Khrushchev in Bulgaria, referring to uh, Bulgarian immigrants to Romania who were like strategizing how to overthrow the Ottoman Empire. So uh, Slavi's show and his team were uh, imagining themselves as this like the vanguard of the Bulgarian opposition. They were kind of comparing uh, the communist rule, rule and the continued communist rule under the guise of the BSP to the Ottoman rule that needed to be overthrown. So they're like anti-Ottoman folk songs uh, were mixed with some like very weird turbo folk songs with like kind of rapey lyrics. Uh, it's very embarrassing, but the, just to show you the popularity that this these albums had. There was like tens of thousands of people attending the concerts uh, of this uh, of his band around the country. Even in my hometown, I was at these concerts. I, I knew, I still know the lyrics of these songs. Um, <laughs> it's awful. But... I'm from the country that made Bado, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Um... So, yeah, they were a big presence um, back then. Um, and they were widely recognized as, like, the the, the cultural producers for this movement, um, along with some more marginal blues bands. Uh, but um, it's interesting because it's a, a part of a long line of Bulgarian political parties that uh, grew out of TV shows, like one the first one of the first big far right parties, Attack, Attack, um, was born out of a, a TV show uh, of its leader. Um, they're uh, very much for uh, almost like direct democracy kind of rule, uh, frequent referendums. Um, and they had like um, some commitment, some commitments to introduce these in a constitutional reform, but that faded away with the forming of the new government. Right. Um, and uh, they had some weird ideas for uh, dem- democratically elected sheriffs in smaller towns, for example, and democratically elected prosecutor, like some U.S. style, I guess. Yeah, that seems very American. Yeah. That hasn't really worked out for them. <laughs> I don't think. It's interesting, the, 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 the TV show connection, is that kind of where the, the comparison to like Zelensky kind of comes from? Uh, um, because obviously I, I think everyone knows now that like he came from this uh, um, comedic West Wing style show called Servant of the People that he then made a party that had the same name and became president 
Um, so, like, is, is that TV? Like, because going back to Five Star Movement, I don't think Beppe Grillo had a TV show. He was on TV, but like that that's that makes me scared for what i see on german tv to be perfectly <laughs> honest <laughs> yeah, that's we got zamora too although zamora actually yeah shit that's actually a fucking good like zamora's politics seems different but like he's definitely of tv um i'm getting distracted now by television politicians <laughs> i feel like ireland would make one of these yeah right? everything i mean yeah Everything you tell me, if they all watch as much TV as you. (laughs) (laughs) There was nothing else to do. And don't have your politics that I fear for Ireland. (laughs) But yeah, um, it definitely Yeah, go on, sorry. Well, this party is like, it is really relying on this rhetoric that they're servants of the people. They're just expressing like directly un- in an unmediated way the will of the people that they organized a referendum some years ago uh, to vote like through machines and stuff. And um, they were really insisting on that. But uh, in the end, when they finally got the mandate and won a bunch of votes in July, they were in the first, the leading party in the July elections. And the government, they proposed without consulting any of the other parties that also represented the electorate, right? Mm. Um, that government was just full of technocrats and very like extremely hated people known for sacking tens of thousands of workers in the Bulgarian bureaucracy in the early 2000s mm. and privatizing a big of the uh, a, a bunch of the big public companies so their um their like political imagination was so limited and they really had no real political cadre they didn't have any time to prepare any either so it was like oh who have i invited to my show and i had fun with a politician maybe i'll ask them to be my finance minister or something that would be so, how i would do it like, <laughs> like as just a regular person that's how i would do it which is i think uh, telling how bad an idea this is <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you've had so many guests on the show Already, so. Oh, yeah. Hey, I'm looking for Big a finance cool. minister, Maggie. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how do they relate to the other parties in the coalition? Just quick. I mean, you referred to them trying to, it sounds like they're trying to be the North Macedonian question party. Did they, is it hostile? Is it this, I mean, in general, four parties, uh, we've talked about them all now. It's a, it's a, it's a funny collection. Well, yeah, it's uh, quite tense right now. Uh, there's been discussions between the PM or a discussion of the lack of discussion within the coalition on the Northern Macedonia issue. Um, and um, there is suspicion that the PM himself is trying to like disregard the um, coalitional agreement that says that they will observe this um good neighborliness agreement with Northern Macedonia from some years ago. Um, but the Bulgarian government now and before has just had some crazy, like totally insane claims of uh, Northern Macedonia. Um, in 2009, the Bulgarian parliament, uh, for example, declared that it denies the existence of the Macedonian language. 
Uh, and then the government back then, the Garib government, uh, whose position is, I think, pretty much identical with that of there is such a people, um, uh, they wrote this thing that explained that until the end of the uh, of World War Two, um, the Macedonian population was actually Bulgarian and it was the Yugoslav communists who turned them into Macedonians. Um, and it's interesting now because the until last year, uh, I guess it was Serbian communism blamed for that uh, transformation, supposed transformation, forced transformation of the Macedonian population. But now with the um, war that Russia waged, um, the, what we hear on TV all the time is actually that the Communist Party of the Soviet Union engineered the whole thing and they're to blame uh, for um, because famously the Communist Separating. Party of the Soviet Union got on swimmingly with the Communist Party of Yugoslavia. They were best friends. <laughs> you say, and they you refer say, to... You say yeah. make a new Slavic people, they say how high. <laughs> um, They're referring to different periods, like the interwar period, and then um, the attempts to build a confederation in the 40s. Uh, it was interesting because in the 40s, Bulgarian Communist Party was actually trying to convince some of its own population that they're actually Macedonian and like the long goal was to basically give away these territories to a Republic of Macedonia within this future Balkan Federation that never materialized, right? Um, but yeah, these arguments keep uh, reappearing in Bulgarian political life and it's quite depressing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, this is this is something that is good that we mentioned because I, I think like every time uh, Macedonia has ever come up in this podcast, it's something that I is completely missing from international narrative. I think everyone is kind of more obsessed with the um, the kind of this kind of rivalry between Macedonia and Greece. Um, that's like what everyone talks about, and like the the. Bulgarian opposition to Macedonia is like completely ignored amongst international media. Well, I want to ask the impossible question, which is that, like, what what does the left do? What how how do you, we have on the one hand for the past we've been talking about all of these politics, do all these parties and coalitions doing some shade of anti-corruption politics, performative media spectacle. Things. On the other hand, we have now three different, or you referred to the 96-97 protests, there were the 2020 protests leading up to these elections, there are also the 2013 protests which uh, triggered a, a new election. And that's not, maybe it's not, maybe you can't call it a revolution in the way it's, in, in Ukraine for example, they, the 2014 is, is referred to as a revolution, but there's some, I, I get the sense that there's some similarity or there's something there's some similar process going on with these recurrent uprisings or mass uh, protest movements so between the anti-politics political coalitions on one hand and these mass protest movements that uh, arise every so often where is is there is there a way forward for like a, a, a well, I don't know what form that political force would take, but uh, there has been like 
some kind of reinvigoration of like um, more bottom-up leftist movements uh, since the 2010s um, and maybe a bit earlier. Um, movements that um, identify as like progressive or radical left that try to reach out to more conventional like trade union organizations and organize with together with these sporadic workers mobilization across the country, whether it be healthcare workers or like um, big grocery store chains workers. Um, and many of these organizations also try to uh, do work regarding like reproduction struggles, like care work, uh, kindergartens, healthcare. Um, again, um, and as I said, some I think have been trying to yes to do some kind of entry strategy into the BSP at the same time with. Um, um, engaging with, uh, for example, queer and gay rights mobilizations. Um, but um, uh, the sad thing is that the war right now is splitting even these rather marginal and small organizations into a free um, because yeah, p people did take different sides and um, suspect themselves, like each other, of being CIA agents or useful idiots or Moscow Kremlin um, useful idiots. Uh, and there's just like an incredible tension within the left. And I don't know what that will look like. Um, in a couple of months, and whether like the these progressive movements can get themselves together and like continue to work after this, um, I don't know. I, I am very, I don't know <laughs> what to say. No, that, that's absolutely fair. I'm very pessimistic. Yeah, you are not alone. Right now, <laughs> um, when you were saying CIA handler, Kremlin, useful idiots, it's it was so nice of you to shout out our Patreon supporters. Um, <laughs> the, um, the the like, I, I think for uh, probably the Bulgarian situation is unique in, in in some ways, but the invasion and this kind of. Uh, um, uh, new acknowledgement that geopolitics exists which was uh, the before this happened it, 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 people basically didn't talk about it um has feels like it's changed a lot of things and a lot of people have used this opportunity to to beat the left with it accusations of being pro-putin or uh, wanting ukrainian people or russian people or whoever to die it's it, it's 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 a rough time everywhere but i have noticed that bulgaria still has these supposedly debates of being pro-russian and i'm kind of curious how this invasion has manifested um in bulgaria like, well yeah i guess first First, Bulgaria is not really a factor um, in this conflict, I guess. Uh, like, we don't even have the military equipment that would make a significant, um, would significantly help Ukraine, even if we were to send it. Not like a military expert, but. 
uh, from what I hear. Similar discussion, yeah. Um, And Bulgaria itself, like, as I said, most of the people, when asked, they say, I'm for neutrality, but very supportive of NATO, like 60% of Bulgarians want to remain in NATO, very supportive of the EU, like 80%. um, And the majority are very welcoming of Ukrainian refugees. But um, there are, like... uh, huge attacks on the left, as you said, for not taking a clear stance, uh, supposedly. Uh, But even if they do, they're ignored or, like, called out for not taking a a tough enough stance on, like, um, dissident leftists who support Putin and uh, cancelling them. Um, And, um, yeah, the left has been condemned by every liberal intellectual right now and all kinds of warmongers in the, at the moment and they're blamed for not having a clear doctrine uh, but also use that as a proof that the left are doctrinaire um, is very strange um, also like some conservative pro-Russia intellectuals claim as everywhere I guess that Russia is challenging the dominance of the US on the world scene and it's a kind of a retaliation for the US and NATO ignoring what Russia perceives as its security interests for so long. Um, others are like more on the far right spectrum saying that Russia will at any second uh, invade Bulgaria because Putin said that he wants NATO to leave Eastern Europe and like some even went as far as to say that the Bulgarian rulers in the world, in World War II were cowards because they only sided with Germany but didn't actually declare war to the Soviet Union, which should have been a brave thing to do. And that's a, a lesson for us today. Um, so it's a very extreme discussion and like calls for peace or for restructuring of international relations are really like do not have a way in, in uh, into these debates right now do you have anything else you want to right. those are all my those are all my questions um thank you so much maggie for joining us but bulgaria i think will continue to be a uh, one of our points of interest on the podcast <laughs> and... it will continue to be there <laughs> and um yeah your writing uh, which is in the description in New mm-hmm. Left Review and Jacobin, um, I think is, a, is a, a great way for anyone listening who wants to learn more to um, do that. To do so. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there anything else, um, Maggie, any, anywhere else uh, people can read you or, or find your work? Um, I don't know. I'm on Twitter. You can find me there. And, uh, I, I don't write so often, so I don't have like my outlets. Thank you for having me. No problem. Absolutely. And any time, for sure. Uh, The only little bit of housekeeping I have to do is this will be coming out on Monday. So we will be doing a live stream for the second round of the French election. Uh, Man, that first round sure was something. (laughs) I'm so glad one and the other person lost (laughs) Um, (laughs) i'll edit that later (laughs) but uh um yeah so twitch.tv forward slash corner we will be looking at 
a second round of the French election, which it's mm. before the first round. I'm not particularly hopeful, but we'll see. We'll we see. can live stream the next Bulgarian election too. That's oh, that, <laughs> <laughs> which will be <laughs> our next Boyko Bordesovares. So that'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> It'll just be us in front of a green screen with the photo of him on the <laughs> bed with all the money. Wait, I haven't actually seen the photo. Is I there, don't, I people don't just it, talk about the the photo. Is, is the photo available publicly? Yeah, it's everywhere. There's even videos. I don't know if I've seen it. Right, well, we're, we know what we're doing after this right, call. Right. We have to go. Put it in the description. So. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. We're on it. Uh, <laughs> thanks again for coming on. And we will catch you, the listener, on the bonus feed on Friday. Ciao, ciao. Bye. Ciao. Yeah.